I don't know about you, but this season right now and into the summer is my absolute favorite time of year. When the trees begin to blossom and the leaves get darker and uh, the smell and the sounds and the sights of summer are, are all around us, there's something, at least for me personally, that is so reviving and so invigorating about this time of year, I feel like, like the trees, like I'm coming to life. And my wife is the same way. We just absolutely love being outside. We're probably some of the most outdoorsy people that you can, uh, can meet. And for that reason, when you come into our home, the inside of our home looks a lot like the outside of our home. <laughs> Foliage, vines, leaves, you know, all kinds of things that remind us of our favorite place and our favorite time so that uh, even in the winter, there's some of that life that surrounds us and we can kind of feel the essence of it. Now, the big difference between outdoors in the summer and indoors at our house is that the indoor foliage that we have to remind us of the outdoors is mostly fake, it's mostly plastic and paper and paint. And the reason for that is because the energies of our life at this stage cannot be given to maintaining plant life. <laughs> you know, they die. You know? And so for the sake of, uh, uh, of, of, of maintenance, basically, we don't have living things. They're all plastic things. But what that means is that we have basically lied to ourselves by creating an environment full of fake things to make us think that we're somewhere we're not. So we're basically lying to ourselves. We've created this environment because it doesn't bother us that it's all fake, it just makes us feel better. And so because it makes us feel better, we deal with the fact that it is absolutely plastic, that it's not real. Now, when it comes to indoor foliage and the environment that we've created in our house and the settings, that's not a big deal. And we don't really care, and we don't lose sleep over the fact that we're deceiving ourselves about what's in our house, what it looks like versus the reality that it should be. But what happens when it's something that's a little bit more serious than just what you're looking at with your eyes in terms of decor in your house? What if we were to do that with our roadmaps? You know, I mean, nobody really uses roadmaps anymore, you know, but let's say we wanted to go somewhere and we thought, well, you know, what? we don't really like the way this map looks, so we'll just make something up. And we'll make a fake map that has all the characteristics of a real map, except for the fact that it isn't true and it doesn't get you where you're seeking to go. Or what if it's not a map, but what if it is a doctor? that we're going to, or some kind of a medical condition that we're seeking to treat. And, and rather than finding someone with actual expertise that understands the conditions that we're going through, we were to go to someone who was a fake doctor, someone who made up their credentials or who purchased a degree online and had a fraudulent practice that promised to know how to treat a specific condition but actually had no idea what they were doing. That would be a little bit more detrimental. Or even worse than that, what if it was the pastor of the local congregation or the church 
that that congregation is attending? What if that wasn't actually real? What if what they were doing was simply a plastic form or a formula that was designed to attract a crowd or to put on the production or to give the appearance as though everything in it is legitimate and real, but actually under the surface, the root of it is deceptive or deceitful or untrue in some way. What happens when the most important thing in life, our knowledge of who the creator and living God is, and his salvation and way in which he gives mankind to be saved, what happens when that's fake, when that isn't real? That's a detrimental and dangerous place to be. Plastic is acceptable in some settings, but in others it is absolutely an abomination. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter is writing to Christians during his last days. And on his heart, as the apostle who preached the sermon that first started the church, is that he wants to remind God's people with the last energies that he has before going to heaven of three of the most important things in his mind that he wants committed into the memory of the church for ages to come. He said, I will endeavor or I will make it my pursuit that after my departure, you can have these things always in your remembrance. And so three things Peter writes about, three separate topics in 2 Peter, that he urges you and I to be constantly aware of, to commit to our memory, so that we don't lose sight of these important things. Number one, the importance of growing constantly. Chapter 1 that we looked at last week. That we never lose sight of the fact that if we stop growing as Christians closer to the Lord day by day and year by year, then that's going to be for us the beginning of the end in terms of our pursuit of God and our experience with Him and the abundant life that He promises for us. We must continue to grow. Secondly, and what we look at tonight in the end of chapter 1 and then through chapter 2, is the real versus the fake when it comes to the things of God, the truths of God, and the servants of God. Very, very important and critical for us. And then next week, hopefully, Lord willing, chapter 3, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So those three things, Peter says, listen, if there's three things that I can leave with you that are very important, grow, understand that not everything that says Jesus is actually real, and realize Jesus is coming back again. And so tonight, we look at the second of those things, and the way that Peter does this is extremely practical. The first thing he does is he holds up what is true and what is real, and then he gives a description of the counterfeit, or that which is fake. And so he gives to us a paradigm or a model, something that we can hold side by side, that we can look at so that we can be led and guided. Now, Peter knows that he's going to pass away. He knows that Christians are going to be raised up, saved in a certain place. They're going to be uprooted and relocated. Things happen. Churches change. People come and go off the scene. And so it's important for you and I 
that we understand how to spot a phony when it comes to spiritual things. And here's why it's important. Because the Bible expressly declares that we as Christians are to be a part of a local church. God does not endorse Lone Ranger Christianity. Sometimes that would be easy, wouldn't it? And desirable. That we could just walk with God, we could do books and tapes, that we could just seclude ourselves from the body of Christ proper because it's just simpler sometimes to not have to deal with other people. Problem with that is that God says you got to deal with other people and that we're to be, we're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. So as we move from place to place as God leads us and as things change throughout our lifespan, how do we recognize what is real versus what is fake and how can we be protected against spiritual deception so that we don't find ourselves believing the wrong things about God nor deceived concerning his way of salvation. So Peter writes that to us. He begins by giving us the real thing at the end of chapter 1 in verse 16. And Peter says this, testifying concerning himself and for us. He says this. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice, first of all, that Peter includes himself amongst those whom he is speaking to. He says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now, every single one of us that's here tonight has been called into a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And the terms of that relationship is that we're to follow him with every part of our being. That we're confessing and declaring him to be the Lord of our lives. Not just the leader or the shepherd, not just the guru or the teacher, not just the example that we follow, but we're called to make him the Lord of every part of our lives. Jesus would say, he that will come after me or follow me, must take up his cross daily and follow me. Meaning that the terms of following Jesus are that he becomes the Lord of all, even to the point of death. Now, that's a radical ask on the part of someone to demand that if you want eternal life, then it means that you make me the Lord of all and that you follow me in every part and give me access to every part of your life. Now, if someone came and knocked on your door and made that demand of you promising to save, wouldn't you be a little bit skeptical? Wait, you're telling me that you can give me eternal life and all I've got to do is give my whole life to following after you in every way, even to the point of death? I'm sorry, but I need a little bit more than that. That's a lot to ask in order for you to make a promise that no one has ever been able to fulfill or to perform. And yet, that's what every one of us is called into, and it's what we have given God of ourselves when we were saved or born again. We said, I make you Lord of all. And what Peter is telling us here is that when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, we did not do that based upon cunningly devised fables. Now, what are cunningly devised fables? The word cunning literally means something that has hidden intentions. It's cunning. It means it presents itself to be something, 
But in all actuality, when you see it for what it is, it's something completely different than what it looks like. He's saying they're not cunning and they're not devised. The word devised means thoughtfully and carefully calculated. In other words, that someone sat in a room somewhere and said, well, if we write the story this way, or if we present it with these kind of words, or if we create this type of environment that lets people's emotional guard down and gets them into a particular mood, and then we say it, it's devised, is what he's saying. And then fables means stories that are intended to teach. And so our intent is to draw people, and we're going to do it in a strategic way with stories that makes sense in a lure to people's minds. Peter says, that is not what we have followed. We have not given our lives to follow something that appears to be something, but in all actuality is actually nothing or is something other than what it actually is. It was not cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? or the testimony of it. It's the accounts of the Gospels that we have recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, what Peter is saying is that when you read in John's account that Jesus turned water into wine, or that a man who was paralyzed for 38 years was suddenly told to take up his bed and walk, and he walked. Or when you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus walked upon the water coming to the disciples in the third or fourth watch of the night, and that Peter came out of the boat and walked, that those things actually happened. They're not stories intended to teach, as some would say that they are, or things that our parents made up, or traditions that have been handed down that no one can prove. Peter says, no, they weren't fables, but rather we were eyewitnesses of all of the things that were testified in that account. His power is real, and his right to be called Lord is absolute, because these things actually happened. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Perhaps some of you have heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson is kind of ascribed loosely as being a Christian, one of the founding fathers that believed in Jesus Christ. The problem with that is that Thomas Jefferson wasn't really a Christian. He was a deist, and his faith in Jesus Christ goes as far as to say that Jesus was an amazing teacher and that the things that he said are among the sublimest things that have ever been spoken by the human oratory. However, he openly declared that he did not believe in any of the miracles of the New Testament. And so the only reliable parts of the record are the things that Jesus said, not any of the things that Jesus did. That makes him an unbeliever. Because to follow him is to believe that the things that he said and that he did prove that he is who he said that he is. Peter says, these were not fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we followed him and we saw it firsthand. So what is Peter's testimony when he says concerning all of this? He says in verse 17, he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So Peter takes one event that took place while he was walking with Jesus, and he expounds that to us as something that he can testify of firsthand that he experienced. The account is given in Matthew chapter 17. It's when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up into an exceedingly high mountain, just the four of themselves alone. And it says that in that place, Jesus was transfigured in their sight, meaning that everything that was on the inside of him, his glory, his effulgence, who he was as the person of God, that it beamed forth out from him and his glory was revealed. His clothing began to shine brighter than the noonday sun. And Moses appeared and Elijah appeared. And this conversation began to unfold between Jesus and Moses and Elijah as they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as Peter, James, and John watched this happen, it says that there was a voice that came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And as the father finished declaring his testimony of pleasure over the person of the son, the vision ended and Peter, James, John, and Jesus were left standing there as they had been before any of that took place. And Peter says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his glory with our eyes. We heard the voice of the father come from heaven and declare that this is his son in whom he is well pleased. And so these things are not fables, but I saw that. That's an experience. Now, there might be someone here that's sitting here tonight that's saying, well, okay, I'm the skeptic. I'm the one that I'm not sure if I can make Jesus Lord of all of my life. I'm not sure if I can put my faith in the scriptures and in the stories that are recorded, the testimony that's recorded, to the point that I can make him Lord of all. Because I'm not sure I'm convinced that those things actually happened and those things are actually real. But maybe if I had an experience like Peter had, we're up on a mountain, all of a sudden earth is pierced through with the glory of eternity. The voice of God speaks and gives validity to what I'm seeing in the moment of that vision. If I had an experience like Peter had, then maybe I would believe I'm not sure that the testimony of a 2,000-year-old dead fisherman is enough to convince me that Jesus actually came, was God, and manifested the power of God. Well, I'm glad you're skeptical of that because Peter expects that you would be. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 19. He says, in spite of this, even though this happened, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, if my testimony of what I experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration and my testimony that the, the accounts of the Gospels is true, if that's not enough for you, then I've got something that I can lay before you that is of a greater, more concrete, foundational proof that these things are absolutely real than the word of my testimony or even the power of that experience. And that is the word of this prophecy. 
The word that he uses there in verse 19 when he says we have a more sure word of prophecy is the word logos. Word logos equals, or the word, word means logos. And what that speaks of is the written or the recorded word of God or the scriptures. When it talks about prophecy in the context of that verse, it's not speaking about future things that have yet to come to pass, but rather it's speaking about the body of revealed divine truth. It says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And so when he talks about the word of prophecy, he's talking about the scriptures. And what he's saying concerning the scriptures that you and I have right here that these things are a more concrete evidence to the fact that Jesus is who the Bible sets him forth to be and that his way is the way that God has made for our salvation even more than, listen, the testimony of Peter and a spiritual experience of even seeing Jesus. Now, Now you would think that if someone were to see Jesus glorified like Peter was, and hear the voice of God, that that would be pretty magnificent, isn't it? Peter says, no, 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 no. We have something that's more sure even than that. And that is the word of God. It's important that we understand that more concrete than any spiritual experience that any person has, even if that person is you, more concrete than that is the word that God has laid out for you and I right here. That is the most concrete and sure thing that we have. Why? Because spiritual experiences can sometimes come from foreign or counterfeit sources. Sometimes we can have a spiritual experience that's based upon a sickness that we're going through or a substance that we ingest, whether we do it on purpose or whether it's something that happens to us in a hospital, we could have a spiritual experience based upon a chemical imbalance that's going on inside of us. Spiritual experiences can have their origin in hell. The devil can cause us to have spiritual experiences that are completely and absolutely counterfeit. So spiritual experiences are not a reliable means of producing faith in God. There are whole false religious systems that are built around spiritual experiences that individuals have had. The Mormon church is built upon the spiritual experience that Joseph Smith had in the Hill Cumorah in Palmyra, New York. An angel appeared that gave him glasses and tablets, and there was a very spiritual thing that I believe actually happened. The problem is, it's a counterfeit something. The Jehovah's Witnesses, many of the cults, people even to the present day. There's something going on in Newburgh. Perhaps you've been there and you're in Walmart or Borders and the people come to you and they ask you, have you heard about God the Mother? You know, whole movements and things that stir up and come on the scene based on someone's spiritual experience. The problem with spiritual experience is that there's nothing concrete about it. It could have its origin in something completely wrong. You say, so what's the defense? We have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, God has given us the scriptures. They are absolutely complete. They're absolutely full. Peter said in the last chapter that he has given to us everything that we need for life and for godliness in the precious promises that have been recorded for us in scripture. It is the absolute and complete revelation of God 
everything that there is for us to know about God, about truth, about life, about salvation, about his ways, about what pleases him, about what morals are right and wrong, about the path and direction for our lives, everything that we need is laid out for us perfectly in Scripture. And God puts his seal upon it and upon its validity in three ways. Number one is that he equates it with himself. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, God says, I want you to be so sure that you can stand upon what's written in this book that I'm going to equate it with my name. I'm going to make the two things one. That the Word was with God and the Word was God. In other words, my whole name is tied up, my whole reputation and who I am is tied up in the absolute concrete truth of the Bible that you can stand on. Furthermore, number two, Psalm 138 verse two, God says that he esteems his word above his name. So not only does he equate the word with himself, he says, I'm going to actually set what I've said a notch higher than that. You say, well, what's the significance or the reason for esteeming his word above his name? He says, not only am I going to not let my reputation or my name be polluted because the scripture is broken, but I'm going to hold it up even higher to the point where I would allow my name to be tarnished before I will allow the scripture to be broken. The word of God, the reputation of God, the person of God stands or falls upon whether or not the scripture holds true if I build my life upon it. And then number three, God sets his seal or his signature that it is his word that he wrote it and the fact that it is the only thing in all of the universe that is 100% accurate in its ability to foretell future events so that those things can be seen compared with what God said and then it can be known that it was of God. There is no other record in the universe that does that. Three times in the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 50, chapter 42, again in chapter 44, and then again in chapter 48, God says emphatically, he says, listen, let some other God, if there is one, declare the things that are going to happen before they happen. He says, I declare the former things so that when they come to pass, you will know that I am he. So God sets his signature upon the word of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God's word is absolutely reliable and concrete? It means that I can make it a reliable resting place for my life. I can build my life upon the word of God and I can know that I'm putting my life in a safe place. It means that my worldview, my definition of truth and error, my moral compass, my assurance concerning who God is, and my assurance concerning his way of salvation, that if I put my trust in his word, that that's a safe place to put my trust. I can declare with assurance that I believe every word that God has spoken, and I can stand on that with my life. I can assuredly trust that if I make his word my life, that I cannot fail in it. And if I stand on what he says, I know that I will be right and I'll stand up every time, period. The word of God is a reliable record and a reliable place that I can build my life. I know 
firsthand what it's like to live life without the Word of God, and I know how to, what it means to live life with the Word of God, because I've lived both ways. And I can tell you this, at least for me, I can't speak for anyone else, is that I will never again live one day of my life apart from the Word of God, because I know the difference between those two things. Going my own way, trying to figure it out myself, relying on the conventional wisdom or testimony of others, I've done all of that. And every time I've done that, it has led me down a wrong path or to failure, frustration, or destruction. But since 19 years ago, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus, and he convinced me that I could trust his word even if I didn't understand it all, or even if it didn't all make sense, but that I could reckon it in my mind that his word is true, and what he says, that's what I'm going to believe, that's what I'm going to do. He has never led me astray in 19 years. Even in the times when I thought he was or that it seemed like I've made a wrong decision and a wrong move. I have lived long enough on the other side of those thoughts and feelings and experiences to look at it and say, God, you knew what you were talking about. And I have never regretted for one minute putting my faith in his word. Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. The Bible is worthy of our faith, of our belief, and of our attention. And thus Peter goes on to say, whereunto, then, concerning the scriptures, you do well that you take heed. I'd say that's a little bit of an understatement. Peter, you could spend four more chapters on just that. <laughs> but he doesn't. He just says, this is my advice. I've been alive a while. You would be wise if you were to take heed to what God says. Why? As unto a light that shines in a dark Place. Now, the dark place in this instance is the world, the world that we live in. It's a dark place. It's been corrupted by sin, its ways and its influences. Everything about this world, it's a world that's shrouded in darkness. But what Peter's telling us here is that the Word of God is a light or a lamp that shines in a dark place. And what that means is that you and I, we're walking in the dark. We're walking in a place where we can't see where we're going. And thus, if we're going to successfully navigate through the obstacles of this course that we're on, then we need a light that's strong enough to keep us from tripping over those pitfalls and dying in the process. Peter is saying that the, the Word of God is the light that is sufficient to make sure that we see ourselves through. He says, you do well to take heed. It's a light that shines in a dark place. And how long do we need the Bible for? Well, until you read it once, and then you can put it on the shelf Hear a sermon once a week and you'll be good. No, no. <laughs> he says, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. In other words, you're going to need this book. You're going to need its counsels. You're going to need its instruction. You're going to need its testimonies. Every day of your life on earth, it will shine as a light until the day that he returns. And then for further credibility or validity, he says in verse 20, he says, knowing this first, and this is important, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Meaning that no one can come on the scene and say to you, you know, I was reading these scriptures and God showed me what they actually mean. For 2,000 years, this text has been shrouded in mystery. and No one has actually known what it is. 
But in my secret prayer time, God sent His angel or God came and He spoke to me and He actually revealed to me what this verse means. That when it says that as lightning that shines in the east is visible also in the west, so also will be the coming of the Lord. What that actually means is that Jesus is living in a box in Brooklyn. And we let him out once a year to tell us what it is that we should do and give us direction for the church and for our lives. That's what it actually means. Well, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, believe. No, 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 no. He's saying there's no prophecy of the scripture that's of any private interpretation. Meaning that when God recorded the scriptures for, for us, he wrote it to mean what it says, and what it means is what God intended it to mean. And there's a great thing that you can go by when it comes to understanding the mysteries of the word. If it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. Because God lays out truth for us because he wants us to know it. He doesn't hide it behind layers and layers of things that you've got to go through or rituals or unlockings or gurus or secret teachings or hidden mysteries and wisdom or Bible codes and numbers and Greek letters. He doesn't do that. What would be the purpose of sending someone an open message and then hiding it so that they could only figure it out if they were lucky enough to meet the one person that knows what it actually means? That's not the heart of God. He gave us the word so that we would know him, so that we would know his ways. So he lays it out in simplistic terms. Notice what Peter goes on to say. Not only is it of no private interpretation, but he says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Someone will say, as you discuss with them, they'll say, well, man wrote the Bible. Man wrote the Bible. Yes, man took pen in hand and recorded on paper the things that we have before us here in the Bible. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is, who were those men and how did they do it? Peter tells us here that they were holy men. The word holy means that they were set apart. It means that they were specifically prepared for the mission or the work God gave them to do. It means that there was a transformation in their life and that they actually knew the God that they were writing about and there was a relationship with him that they had that was deeper than just an ordinary person that all of a sudden did something. God raised these people up for this very purpose and then it says that they spoke or recorded as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, who is the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is the invisible, omnipresent portion of the triune living God. He's God. He's God the Holy Spirit. And he spoke to holy men who then recorded the things that we have here on the pages of Scripture. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he would say it this way. He would say that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it means that it's God-breathed. God breathed it out. And it is therefore profitable, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, correction, in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be, listen, thorough and complete or perfected, matured, lacking nothing. Here's what it means. 
It means that from Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the scripture, not just what it says in its broad macro content, but in the micro of every word, letter, and punctuation, all of it is inspired and God-breathed. And all of it is necessary and profitable to see that you and I come to maturity in our Christianity. It's been well said that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And there's truth in that. We need the Word of God. It is not a work of man. It wasn't written by the will of man, but rather it was inspired by God penned through man for you and I. And here's the best news, is that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the authors to record what we have lives inside of us, and he interprets the Word of God for us and teaches us what it means. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, John writes, it's just a few pages over from uh, where we are in the script uh, here, John writes and he says this, he says, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you need not that any man would teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Meaning that the Holy Spirit of God unlocks the scripture for us as we're reading it. How many of you have experienced that? where you're reading the Bible, and maybe you're reading a passage that you've read before, or you've heard before, or that you're very familiar with. And you understand what it says on the surface, but all of a sudden, it's like God flicks a light switch, and you see that verse in the light of the whole Bible, and in the light of all that you know of God, and it just comes to life in a new and fresh way. Or you're sitting in a sermon like this, and you hear something, and there's things that are resonating and connections that are happening and applications to your own life that no one could ever know. And it's like God, the Holy Spirit is taking the word and he's bringing it to life in your heart in the deepest place. And he's showing you what it means, not a private interpretation, but he's applying the substance of it to you personally in a way wherein it's feeding your soul and building you up in your faith. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, um, I forgot what verse. It's probably going to come up on the screen. John chapter 14, he's gonna, he says that the Spirit, when He comes, that He's going to lead you into all truth. And so the Spirit of God gives to us the revelation of God, and thus we can know Him uh, in the way that He intends to know Him. So there's no private interpretation in all of what God has given to us, but rather that anointing that we have unlocks for us the meaning of the Word of God. Now, all of that is the real thing. We have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, then we have the legitimate means of knowing the difference between truth and error. God has given it to us. And thus, it's important for us to take heed to the Word and to give ourselves continually to it. But chapter 2 starts with the word, but. Do you see that there? He says, but. In spite of the fact that we have truth and that there is truth and that truth matters and is important, there were false prophets or pseudo-prophets among the people, speaking of Israel of old, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Now, Jesus warned of this, didn't he? 
Didn't Jesus say that beware of false apostles and false prophets that will come to you in sheep's clothing? That outwardly everything looks right, but inwardly where you can't see their ravening wolves. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul sat with the elders in the city of Ephesus and he wept. And he said, pleading with them, he says, I have warned you for three years, every day and night with tears, that after my departure, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock, to draw disciples after themselves, giving false doctrine and false teaching to the church. Beware of it, he said constantly. Peter here says that there will be false teachers among you. Meaning this, listen, I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you. Not everyone who holds open a Bible and preaches a sermon or has a church or a big church or a ministry or even a reputation is necessarily someone who is called by God or giving the truth of God and sometimes they're not even saved. They don't even know God. That's what Peter is saying here. You say, well, well, that's amazing. You mean it's possible for a church to have 10,000 people and for the pastor of that church, the founder of that ministry, and the one who speaks from that podium to not even be saved? Absolutely, that's the case. Absolutely. Peter says there will be false teachers among you. And what will they do? He says, who privily or secretly will bring in damnable heresies. Now, a heresy is a false teaching. That's what that means. And damnable means that the teaching crosses the boundary of what is legitimate truth. Meaning that they're teaching things that cross the boundary of what biblical Christianity is. And thus, if I put my faith in the things that they're teaching, then I'm putting my faith in a gospel or in a concept that cannot save or cannot lead me into a deeper, closer relationship or intimacy with God. Meaning it's possible to sit in a church and to hear things that aren't true. Damnable heresies. Even unto denying the Lord that bought them, and they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. The root of this crossing of the boundary that he talks about is twofold. Number one is that it denies the person of Jesus Christ. It denies the Lord. Now, this is the more obvious, isn't it? When someone knocks on our door and, you know, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, and they seek to tell us that Jesus is not God, that he's an angel or that he's a created being or that he's the co-equal of Michael the Archangel of Satan or his counterpart in some way, that person has denied the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus is God. And so to make him less than God is to deny him his person. It's to deny him his identity. And it's to move outside of the borders and boundaries of what is true salvation. That's why we would declare that someone who ascribes to a Mormon theology is not actually born again. They're not really saved. Because they're not trusting in the Jesus that God has made the acceptable sacrifice for sin. They're denying the Lord. The second half of it is that they deny the Lord that bought them. Where did the Lord buy us? On the cross. That's right. And so they diminish the cross in some way. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. He would say, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. The only means whereby a man or a woman can be saved is by the cross of Christ. And to diminish that in any way is to move outside the boundaries of biblical salvation. It happens every day in churches. And it happens in three ways, and everything else falls under one of those three things. Number one is legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is saying that the cross isn't enough. That in order for me to be saved, it's the cross and my good behavior and my track record of obedience and how well I keep the commands of Christ. If you've done that, you've diminished the cross of Christ. You've made it of none effect. You're saying that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished to Telestai, that he was actually saying, it is almost finished. That I did all I can, now let's see what you can do with what I've started. It's to deny the cross of Christ. That's what legalism is. It says the cross isn't enough. The other side of that is liberalism. What's liberalism? Liberalism says that the cross wasn't necessary. It means that I can live however I want. Jesus didn't really have to die for sin because God made a way wherein now he winks at sin. So I don't have to trust in the power of the cross to change my life. I don't have to rely on him to fill me with his spirit and sanctify and change me so that I'm no longer walking in my sins. The cross justifies my sins. And so now I can continue to walk in liberality and I can just sin however I want because the blood of Jesus just saves me. That's liberalism. It's denying the cross of Christ. It's saying that the cross wasn't necessary. I didn't need it. And then the third great way wherein the cross of Christ is denied is through pluralism. What's pluralism? Pluralism is saying that Jesus is a way to God, but that God accepts other religions too. God accepts other ways too. What that does is it makes the cross optional. Well, it's an option if I wanted to go that way. If my cultural bent or slant was towards the God of the Bible or the Judeo-Christian ethic, I could choose the cross. I choose it not. I choose another way. And I'm sincere in what I believe. That's pluralism. It denies the cross. And so whether it's saying that the cross isn't enough or whether it's saying that the cross isn't necessary or whether it's saying that the cross is just an option, damnable heresies that if a person believes in, they have moved themselves outside the boundaries of what biblical Christianity is. And what Peter is saying is that there are subtle teachings and subtle, slick teachers that bring these damnable heresies into the hearts and minds of God's people. And the result is swift destruction. They will be swiftly destroyed. And here's the sad part, verse 2. It says that many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth will be evil spoken of. There's going to be many people that ascribe to these false beliefs. And because of these false beliefs, the way of actual truth is going to be maligned. Now here's their motive. Here's what drives the heart of a false teacher, verse 3. It says that through covetousness, that is, greedy desires, there's something in it for self, 
shall they with feigned words, the word feigned in the Greek is the word plastos. Guess what English word we get from that? Plastic. That's right, plastic words. They formulated them. They're cunningly devised in a way wherein they'll evoke an emotional response or adherence. With feigned words, what do they do? They make merchandise of you. The people are looking at you as a means of enriching themselves or beautifying their position or exercising influence or boasting of their success. In some way, you have become the servant of their reputation or enrichment. He says they make merchandise of you. That's their motive, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. Here's what he's saying. Though it looks like they are continually successful, and as though God doesn't intervene and that God is apathetic and removed and doesn't care, Peter says, you just watch and wait and see. And here are three examples. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, speaking of those angels that fell with Satan at the beginning, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and, example number two, spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And, example number three, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. Third example is the, um, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what do all three of these examples have in common? That God was patient. God gave them time and space to get right and to repent. But when they didn't, ultimately judgment came upon them. But here's the good news. And it says, but he delivered just Lot. Now, that doesn't mean that he only delivered Lot. It means just is the word righteous that he delivered righteous Lot. In other words, Lot was a saved person in the midst of the city of Sodom that was going to be destroyed. For that righteous man, verse 8 tells us, dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. In other words, what Peter is telling us here is that Lot was tormented by the lifestyle of those that he was a living, living alongside of in the city of Sodom. He heard their speech, and it was like, ah, I don't say He just turned on the radio, ah, he saw what they were doing, and ah, you know, he, he was vexed by the things that he saw there in that whole thing. And here's why Peter brings that up. He says, the Lord, verse 9, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust or the unrighteous unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, what's the significance or the tie-in between Lot and Sodom and its destruction and what Peter is saying to us here concerning the false teachers and false uh, apostles of, of, of church history and, and church uh, kingdom life. Here, here's where he's going with this. Is that if someone is actually legit, 
They're true. They're, they're sincere. They're teaching truth. They're not in it for merchandising of people. They're, they're, their heart is in the right place. They're called by God. That their life is going to continually be upheld in righteousness. God is going to deliver the righteous person from the temptations and pitfalls that will take out others. Here's why that's important. Watch this. God is now going to tell us this is the character profile of the false teacher. He says this. But chiefly, verse 10, the false, this is the false teachers. Them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. It's a reference to sexual sin. Every time that word uncleanness is used, it's speaking of a sexual uh, uncleanness that exists in the life of this false person. Number two, actually this is number three. He already gave us the first two aspects. They're covetousness and they're liars. He said that back in verse three, right? Covetousness, plastic words. They're, they're covetous and they're liars. That's the first two profiles. Number three is that they're sexually perverse. Or not perverse as much as unclean. They're, there's some kind of sexual sin that still exists under the surface. Number four, he says that they despise government, meaning that they don't want any authority. They claim to have a connection to God and they need no overseer. They don't need anybody to hold them accountable. They're accountable to God alone. Number five, it says that they're presumptuous, meaning that they'll do things, they'll spend big, they'll talk big, they'll go big, and they'll call it faith, but in actuality, it's presumption, it's self-driven. Number five, it says that they're self-willed, they're governed and motivated by their selfish desires. Number six, it's a, actually, am I on number seven? I should have numbered them. It says that they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities, meaning that they're going to speak evil about other ministries, about others that are called by God in some way, that that's their MO. Seven things that he says and ascribes that these are the marks and the characteristics of a false teacher, is that when you see these things in the, in the lives of them, if they're covetous, if they're liars, if there's sexual uncleanness, if they despise authority, if they're presumptuous, if they're self-willed, and if they're constantly maligning other ministries, if you see those things in the ministry or in the fruit basket of someone who's purporting to speak truth, then you can label it in your mind that that person is a false person. Because it says back up in verse 8, it says, or in, in verse 9 rather, that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Meaning that just because someone is a sincere preacher or teacher doesn't mean that they're not tempted. And it doesn't even mean that they can't make a mistake. But God is going to uphold them and they're going to walk the line of righteousness and be a continual example. And when you see someone fall in some horrible moral failure, it's a mark in your mind that that person needs, needs to be marked. That person isn't right in the sight of God. What does God have to say about uh, these people? It's not good. Verse 11. It says, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, and bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord, but these, and now here we go. This is what God has to say about the false teacher. He says, But these, as natural brute beasts, Natural means not spiritual, 
Brute means base, earthly, and beast means of an animal nature. Made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they don't understand, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, they're slaves themselves, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, meaning that they've made themselves excellent at marketing for the things of God. They've exercised their souls with covetous practices, which have forsaken the right way. That's scary, isn't it? Because to forsake the right way, what does that mean? It means that at one point they were on the right way, but they've forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking, I don't know if he's talking about Balaam or the donkey when he says that, but he says, speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Now, just as an example, he pulls from the Old Testament. He's talking about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God, but Balaam was moved and taken by the money that was offered to him by the king of Moab, and he was so infected with the desire for that money that even a talking donkey couldn't get him to repent. Now, if you go home and your dog tells you, listen, you need to get right with God. You're doing some things wrong. If you become so hardened that you say, eh, talking dog, I don't believe it. (laughs) You got problems. (laughs) And he's saying that even Balaam, who was a prophet of God, was so enslaved by his greed for Balak's money that a talking donkey wasn't enough to turn him back the right way. God concludes, verse 17, he says, These are wells without water, clouds carried with a storm. Can you imagine you're you're going to a well, you've been going through a desert, you're looking for some water, you finally find an oasis, you roll back the stone, it's dry as a bone. There's a lot of churches like that. Weary people traveling through the world. Looking, waiting for some substance, waiting for living water, something that will satisfy, something that's real from another world. And then they open the glass doors and they walk into a marble cathedral and they hear beautiful music and they see smoke arising from uh, screens and they see people with lifted hands and they anticipate and they just wait. They're waiting for the living water to come down upon them from above. They lift up their hands, they open their mouths and then the preacher stands in the pulpit And there's no water. It's completely earthly in everything that's spoken. It might even read scripture, but there's no water. They're wells without water. They're clouds that are carried with a storm. What's a cloud carried with a storm? It's mist. It's loud. But you can't drink it. And you can't touch it. And it's mysterious. And it hides and it's insincere. It's a cloud carried with a storm. And God says, to whom is the mist of darkness is reserved forever. What they gave 
and the name of falsity is what they will receive for eternity. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, desire. In other words, you give to my ministry and you will receive. And you go, yes, I want to receive. I'm going to give everything I can. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. They're deceiving people and moving them outside the lines of biblical salvation. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if, and here's a scary verse, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are then again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment that was delivered unto them. These are fearful words that are spoken by the Apostle Peter. Now, obviously, there's a debate in this. It's like, well, is Peter saying that someone can lose their salvation after they can have it? And so some would say, well, it says very clearly there that they escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's salvation. So they were saved, and now they're not. So they lose their salvation. But others will quote this last verse, verse 22, But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, that the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And so those will say, well, the dog and the sow speaks of an unchanged nature, and that these people were never saved in the first place to begin with. So they didn't lose their salvation. They never had their salvation. You can take your pick on that. Uh, you, you, you know, and, and just please, when you're discussing that after service tonight, do it in the parking lot because you'll be here until the morning going back and forth on all of that. And, uh, you know, we don't want to wait for it and the whole thing. Here's the point as we close and, and the musicians can come. And I appreciate your patience tonight. I will never do this again. Okay, I'm a liar. <laughs> you got me on all seven now. Here's the point of this. The fact that this exists is a reality, and it bothers God greatly. Deceitful spiritual things bother God, and here's why it bothers God. And just, if, you, if I've lost you, just tune in as we close here, because you need to understand why this bothers God, because it's for your sake that it bothers God. It bothers God, first of all, because it means that people are using him and they're using the Bible and they're using their title as a representative of him to hide covetousness and corruption. They're hiding behind God in order to enrich themselves. On Sunday, Pastor Bobby said something hilarious about Eddie Murphy. Did you guys catch that? And he said that Eddie Murphy doesn't do God jokes. And when he was asked why he doesn't do God jokes, he said, because I'm afraid I'll wake up in the morning and I'll no longer be funny. (laughs) But here's the point, why I bring it up again. 
is because if even the world knows, no, you don't touch God. Like, that's separate. Like, I, I might be con- so far away from, from being right with him, but I'm, I understand what that is. I'm not touching that with my secular career. But then you have someone who, in his name, is purposefully deceiving people for the sake of enriching themselves. That's great wickedness, and it is most condemnable before God. It's also bothersome to him because it means that there are men and women that are capitalizing on people's sincere desire and love for God in order to get them to do what they want. I don't know about you, but if you're a lover of God in here right now, then that means by default that you will do anything if you think that it will please him or if you think that's what he wants you to do. And if you're new in the faith and you're just coming into this thing and you hear some preacher tell you, well, if you really love God, then this is what he demands and requires of you. You're going to do that. And what someone has just done is that they've taken control of a feeling that you have towards God and that God treasures the fact that you have that feeling towards him. And they're now exploiting it unto their own ends. And God looks at that with disdain. He hates it when that happens. It messes up the saved when deceivers speak lies about God to capitalize for their own ends. And it chokes out the lost. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and turned over tables? That's how God feels about these types of things. And here's what you need to know, really in closing now is that as time goes by, this is going to get worse and worse. And here's why. Supply and demand. It's the simple rule of the universe. That if people want something, then there's going to be someone else that's more than willing to provide it. And the truth of the matter is that those that are deceived and wanting to be deceived are not just in the apostle, prophet, teacher, pastor category. But more than that, they're in the people, pew, congregation category. Jeremiah says it this way. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. He says, a wonderful and a horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, meaning they do it for money. And my people, that's us, love to have it so but what will you do in the end thereof? For as many deceivers as there are out there, there are hundreds of people that are wanting to be deceived. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Alleviate my guilt, eliminate the the pull of my conscience, make me feel like I'm right with God and I will drink in every word. And as time goes by, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. What's the defense? We have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. The Bible, the Savior, the Holy Spirit. Remember, don't forget. Father, we thank you tonight. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would seal us with truth, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, 
that you would give us an ignited and refreshed passion for the Word of God. And that you would keep us as a shepherd keeps his sheep. We thank you, Lord, for speaking, for teaching us these things, for this sobering warning. And we ask, Lord, that our church would be sanctified, that our pastors, our teachers here in this church and in Dutchess County would be those that are held in your hand as the candles of the lampstand, and that you would keep us far from deception in these most darkened and deceitful of days. So we make this our prayer tonight, and we thank you for loving us enough to tell us these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.